0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music, and
1: more.
2: You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
3: Good afternoon. I'm Selena Green and welcome to you of those of you listening in via the ABC's digital streaming channels and the ABC Listen app. Great to have you on board. Do you feel like you're ending the year on a bit more of an optimistic note? Are you starting to see some times of things turning around after a tough year? Well let me know. Is that a fair way to describe it? Are you starting to feel a little bit more optimistic? as you're heading into 2024. My talkback number one 300 or you can send me a text on 467 922891 You're gonna hear in a sec what Rabobank's latest survey of farmer confidence here in South Australia has to say. Also in this next half an hour, frustration, it continues over that gap in the wild dog fence.
4: The fact that taxpayers are forking out multi-millions of dollars for these different departments We need to stop this endless circle of vacuous discussion and get into something that's a bit more tangible. When we see the fence that's built, then we can say, big pat on the back, job well done. But in the interim, we're just going to keep banging heads together until such time as we get a result.
3: More on that very shortly. But yeah, how would you rate your 2023? And how optimistic are you feeling about season 2024? Rabobank's latest quarterly rural confidence survey has shown a late turnaround when it comes to farmer confidence here in South Australia, although it's still at a low level overall. I spoke with Rabobank's regional manager for South Australia, Roger Matthews, and asked if it seemed like the year was finishing on a more positive note than it had been for much of the year.
5: Yes, so confidence improved a a little in uh, in South Australia in the fourth quarter survey that Rabobank um, did. We were coming off a pretty low base in the third quarter and I guess in that third quarter there's still all the fear around what's going to happen for spring season Um, and probably when we do the results in the fourth quarter we actually know what's taken place during spring. Largely the season is is finished. And probably I think on on low rainfalls, particularly uh, grain-growing areas on low rainfalls, probably I'd say people were um, a little bit, more surprised on the upside of, of grain yields. Um, so so I think that contributed to a slightly more positive tone. Nevertheless, the overall is, is still concerned about what's going on in the sector across
6: the board, but there was an improvement
3: in confidence overall. Yeah, so as, as you say, it's coming from a, a low base. So even though confidence is up overall, uh, there are still a lot of concerned farmers out there.
5: Yeah, there are, and uh, there, you know, there are concerns around input prices. There are concerns around uh, commodity prices, and also seasons. So, I guess those uh, those three combinations are really the three key drivers of, of confidence. Um, and there are still concerns around them.
3: We have seen in more recent times a slight improvement in some areas with commodity prices. Would would they have factored into this last latest result?
5: Yeah, they did, and. You know, the the survey was taken sort of late October and early November, uh, and it was probably in in almost that late October period that we actually started to see, particularly livestock prices, when you talk about um, cattle prices or um, sheep prices, start to improve. So um, there'd been sort of a fairly significant trend downwards almost until that point, um, perhaps when the survey kicked off. Um, all of a sudden, uh, you know, lamb prices and and, sheep and uh, cattle prices started to improve. And I think when that survey was taken, the uh, eastern young cattle indicator was probably hovering around that 350 cents. And by the end of the survey period, it was up to 400 cents, which is an, an improvement of about 15%. And uh, you know, right now we're probably sitting about 550 cents. So it's been a you know quite a significant improvement in uh, in cattle prices over that period of time. And land prices, um, you
3: know, somewhat similar as well. Yeah. And as you said, they were coming out of a, a pretty reasonably dry winter for a lot of folks and a, and a dry spring as well. Um, interesting speaking about rain. It, it wouldn't have factored in the recent rain we've well, some have got in the past week or so that could have some big, well, some implications for how people are feeling in the next lot of responses.
5: Yeah, well, all, all of a sudden we'll actually have some, some sort of moisture. And it's uh, funny, I actually... Um, talking to one of my clients on, uh, on the air peninsula and I think they'd had 135 mils of growing season rain and harvested uh, a crop off that, which is an amazing effort. Um, but then they've had another 170 mils of rain in sort of uh, late November and December. So it looks like they've got average for 2023, uh, but they only had 135 mils of growing season rain. So, um, you know, really, really tough year for 23. What sits there after 170 mils of, uh, uh, of rain recently means that they'll go into the 24 cropping season with a, a pretty good soil moisture profile, which is uh, a little bit more optimistic than where it's been over the last little while.
3: How do we here in South Australia compare with other states in terms of the, the levels of optimism?
5: Yeah, well, there's only a couple of states uh, across. So I think uh, South Australia, Queensland, New South Wales with slight improvements. So... Um, sort, of, sort of three states actually improved um, and, uh, and other three states actually dropped down. So in terms of overall confidence, South Australia is near the top of the country right now. And I think that's reflective of particularly what's going on on the East Coast. Uh, you know, the seasonal impact on the East Coast has been far more substantial, uh, particularly through um, New South Wales, but also, say, Western Australia. Western Australia has been pretty tough in terms of uh, um, season over there as well. Um, and, of course, Western Australia has come across some really, really um, strong seasons over the last uh, two or three and really strong commodity prices as well.
3: When you break these results down, Roger, into regions of South Australia, what, what sort of story does it say about you know, sort of where the confidence really is across the state?
5: Well, actually, there's probably a bit better confidence in the southeast uh, and, and season's probably been uh, a little better. I know it's been um, drier. In the in the southeast, but overall, compared to the rest of the state, still actually uh, ended up okay. But the The area where things have been toughest has actually been on the um, on the Eyre Peninsula or the West Coast. Uh, but interestingly, they've been the ones that have been perhaps the the big beneficiaries of the most recent uh, rainfall. So you know, right across right across the Eyre Peninsula uh, and also the, the York Peninsula, uh, you know, had sensational rains, which will um, be fantastic for for cropping into into two thousand and twenty-four.
3: Yeah, I think it would be very interesting to see some of the responses that you do get to the, to these questions sort of next time round after all of that and, and going into 2024. But I guess overall, you know, as wrapping up 2023, fair to say that while things have ended on a, a, a more positive note in, in some areas, it has been a really tough year and continues to be some pretty tough times for farmers at the moment
5: yeah i I think that's fair and 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 look bear in mind where we've come from too so i'd say 23 has been a tough year um 24 in terms of confidence is probably looking a little bit better because of subsoil moisture right now but some of those headwinds if you like around commodity prices you know where are they going have we really seen um the shift that we were looking for particularly on livestock so it it certainly looks as if the trend has turned and, and we're on an upward trend at the moment long may that continue and I, and I guess input prices or rising input prices in that inflationary environment, that's still um, a factor to contend with. So there's still some significant headwinds uh, going into twenty four. I would say that if we look at most recent times twenty one um, you know twenty two leading into twenty three, they were really, really strong years, and we saw really, really resilient balance sheets or balance sheets really build during that period of time. so a lot of our clients have a lot of headroom in their facilities and they may need to draw them up through 23 and uh, and 24. And farmers across the board, they're in a long-term game, Selena. So, you know, they're, they're inherently optimistic um, and I think they'll look into uh, 24 with a little bit more smile on their face after the rains of the last uh, week or so.
3: That is Rabobank South Australian Regional Manager Roger Matthews there. Well, speaking of rain and confidence all up, how much rain did you get? in the past week or so. Of course, mother nature doesn't tend to spread it evenly or when you'd most like it. But for some South Australian farmers this past week has delivered more rain than what they got for the whole of winter. It's put a spanner in the works, we know for some, uh, but provided some much needed soil moisture into next year for others. Leaton Wilch is an ag technologist based at Paskerville on the York Peninsula. I asked him what his monitoring sites have picked up this past week in terms of rainfall.
5: I've got a pretty extensive weather station network across SA and Victoria, so I, uh, I look at lots of rain gauges. However, uh, on the York Peninsula, the highest gauging across my network was uh, 138 millimetres. And so that uh, is just out of uh, between Port Wakefield and Lockhill.
3: Right. And is, was that in um, what, like one particular day, or was that a cumulative over a few days?
5: No, sorry, that was uh, over the whole event. So that was a four day cumulative tally.
3: How does that sort of compare to what you'd usually expect at this time of the year, if any?
5: Uh, Look, that's uh, significantly more than what we would normally get in December. Um, And for a lot of areas, they have received a similar amount of rainfall uh, in the last week or so as compared to what they did through the whole of winter.
3: Right. So a winter's worth of rainfall in the space of a week. That's a pretty extraordinary statistic there.
5: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, well, it shows how dry winter was, particularly August, uh, for a lot of areas, um, but also just how significant this rainfall event actually was in December.
3: Yeah, as you mentioned there, you I mean, you've got a, a way to sort of see where a, a much wider system of of looking at what's fallen. I mean, is, was that pretty consistent uh, across the areas that you're able to monitor?
5: Yeah, absolutely. It really was the South Australian Mallee that uh, missed out, I guess, on this rainfall event. Um, but, yeah, fair swag of air Peninsula, York Peninsula through the mid-north and uh, heading down the east of the ranges, Mount Lofty Ranges, got a, yeah, a very large amount of rain.
3: Mm. And in that system in that sort of past week that moved through, but I think quite a few areas also picked up uh, a decent fall towards the end of November as well.
5: Yeah, that's right, November 28th. So a lot of areas got um, yeah, a good old inch of rain, sort of up to 50 mils in certain parts. Um, and this follow up rainfall event has uh, allowed moisture to infiltrate quite deep into the soil so setting up our season for next year with moisture available for crops.
3: This will penetrate quite deeply and, and people will start being able to to figure out just how far that's going to go down?
5: Yeah that's right so with a lot of my monitoring sites I have soil moisture probes as well and that's been quite interesting just to track that infiltration so Plenty of places on the York Peninsula and Mid-North have now had that rain soaked down to about 1.2 metres. So that's, that's quite incredible for December.
3: Yeah. So what, what does that mean then for anyone growing crops in that soil next year? What's, I guess, the upshot of that?
5: That gives people confidence to know that they've got moisture available to grow those crops. And for a lot of, I guess, quite astute farm business managers, they can already have confidence in achieving a, a certain yield and so therefore plan accordingly for what they might budget for uh, urea application or nutrition application, for example.
3: Because this will have some implications, as you say, for urea for herbicides that people will now need to apply though?
5: Yeah, we are likely to see yeah most of South Australia get a herbicide application in the next month or so just to to kill weeds that germinate. Um, so that's, yeah, pretty important that that happens to preserve that moisture that's there. Rate
3: right at this time of the year, obviously, that much not expected generally around around this time. Um, even though it will provide that soil moisture, there obviously there are a few people who this is going to throw some spanner in the works.
5: Yeah, it is. Uh, the downgrading of grain, there's a lot of the areas, and particularly moving into Victoria, have got some um, above-average yielding crops, but the quality is going to degrade with the... Uh, the rain and particularly as the second rainfall event on a lot of the the ripe wheat for example that that will degrade that quality and of course lesser uh, dollars per tonne for stuff that's not as good quality.
3: That is ag technologist Leighton Wilkes there who's based on the York Peninsula and it's 18 minutes past 12.
2: You're listening to Selina Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
3: Well, that 32 kilometre gap in the wild dog fence was one of the top concerns raised at a roundtable discussion in Broken Hill yesterday. Now, at that meeting was the New South Wales Premier, Chris Minns, and Minister for Agriculture, Regional New South Wales and Western New South Wales, Tara Moriarty. They were there to hear from a select member, well, select members of the Broken Hill community and its surrounds. Minister Moriarty spoke with Lily McEwen about how they're addressing the ongoing issue of the dog fence gap and the significant delays in fixing it.
7: This is a problem that has taken four years to fix. People in Western New South Wales and the pastoral slip in particular were promised and promised and promised for four years by the previous government that there would be action taken on this fence and nothing happened. So I've been minister for eight months and we have already gotten to work. I have instructed my department to get to work. Uh, There are holes being dug in the ground and uh, parts of the fence being installed right now uh, as we speak. Uh, We'll work over the summer based on the heat and the hot conditions, um, which of course people uh, in this part of the world are very mindful of. Uh, But after waiting for four years, uh, this government has gotten on with the job and the fence is being built.
8: As you've heard some, the graziers are seriously concerned about this gap and you've said that the previous government they weren't able to address the issue. You've been in Parliament since April. Why hasn't there anything been done in that time?
7: There has been work done on this this issue in that time. I have instructed the department after hearing the frustrations from the local community and graziers uh, around this community about the gap Uh, They heard a lot from the last uh, government over the last four years, but they did nothing. They delayed. There is no excuse. There is no reason. There was money in the budget. They did nothing about this fence for four years. Uh, We have gotten on with the job. Uh, We've taken action. The fence is being built right now, uh, and we will deliver to the pastoralists and graziers uh, of Western New South Wales to make sure uh, that their stock is protected uh, from the dogs uh, that are attacking them. We've gotten on with the job.
8: When do you expect it to be finished?
7: Uh, We'll continue the work that we've started uh, over the last uh, month or so. Uh, Work is continuing now uh, as we speak. I'll be mindful um, of the hot weather over the summer, but we'll continue uh, the work uh, to get it done as soon as possible.
8: Yet grazier from Mulga Valley Station, 100 kilometres northwest of Broken Hill, Paul Martin said that Minister Moriarty has been misinformed about the dog fence construction.
4: She sympathises with their plight and, of course, that's all ministers sympathise with what's going on out here. But I think what al- alarmed me the most was the fact that she had been advised that work has commenced on the dog fence. And I'm here to tell everyone that work has not commenced on the dog fence. The cultural heritage and the biodiversity stuff has been completed. The three landholders in New South Wales have received a landholder access agreement from SOLCON. To allow contractors and government people to come onto our land to look at the fence and and to supervise the construction sort of thing but no work and i repeat no work has been started on the dog fence now we've heard it twice today once from minister moriarty and also from her her press secretary brad he was advised by james bolton the head of sork on the work had commenced this is what we've been going on about for such a long period of time is the the lack of effective communication and the inaccuracy of reporting between different lines of communication and department heads, it just defies comprehension. How can the message become so fractured and broken and incorrect from one department to the next? What is it going to take to get these people to understand that we just want this fence built without all this departmental interference? I feel sorry for uh, Tara Moriarty. She's only been on the job eight months. But she's she's been given bum steers by a bureaucratic process which is clearly deficient and or broken. That
3: is Grazier from Mulga Valley Station, Paul Martin, and he was speaking there to Lily McEwer. It's 22 minutes past 12. Well, let's find out what happened at the last Mount Compass cattle market for the year. For that, we're joined by John Traeger. Good afternoon, John.
6: Good afternoon. Numbers reduced marginally as 8 was offered 894 live weight and open oxen cattle for the final sale of 2023. Quality was fair to average, however, some outstanding pens of grown cattle were presented. The usual trade and process of buyers were in attendance and operating to see prices generally firm for type and condition. The majority of the yarding comprised 435 steers, 198 heifers, and 223 cows. Vela steers range from 220 to 287 cents, and Vela heifers sold from 191 to 265 cents. Ealing steers sold from 160 to 263 cents, as Ealing heifers sold from 100 to 239 cents. Manufacturing steers sold from 223 to 227 cents, as grown steers range from 160 to 251 cents, and grown heifers 171 to 241 cents. Light dairy and beef cows sold from 100 to 101 cents, heavy dairy cows sold from 60 to 201 cents, as beef cows range from 85 to 239 cents light bulls sold 140 to 213 cents with heavy bulls selling from 160 to 239 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger at the Southern Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and The Country Hour.
3: And thanks to John Traeger and John will be back in the new year when those sales resume in 2024. So you're 24, it's 24 past 12. You're with Selena Green. Let's head to the Weather Bureau. Vince Rollins is our forecaster. Hello, Vince. Hello, Selena. What's the story across South Australia today?
9: Yeah, not, not a great deal happening. We've got a bit of cloud in the south and uh, you yeah, did see some shower activity out of that over the last 24 hours or so. A little bit... Uh, over parts of Air Peninsula, but most of the activity was around the Mount Lofty Ranges where we saw up to 10 millimetres and then some falls in the southeast as well. We've had a little bit around since 9am um, but, yeah, not really much in it. So uh, we are expecting those showers to just continue to, to ease and contract uh, a little bit southwards uh, as we head into the late afternoon and overnight. So looking at the next few days, uh, yeah, just a little bit of shower activity about southern coasts and ranges. And the, the lower southeast, but uh, yeah, generally clearing out as we head into the weekend. And that's all due to a, a high pressure ridge just starting to push in across the state. We do have a little bit of a trough going over the, the lower southeast later this evening, that's just going to keep those showers going. But generally, with that high pressure ridge just pushing in, we do see a high forming over the Bight as we head into the weekend, so that's going to clear most of the activity away. And um, we will see. Winds continuing from the south, just going uh, a little bit more northeasterly as we head into the latter part of the weekend, and that's ahead of another trough that is going to move across the state on Monday. So as that trough just moves through, we will see those northerlies just pick up a bit, probably see some elevated Fire dangers on Monday, so it's just something to keep an eye on. But uh, yeah, quite cool, cooler southerlies coming in behind that trough. So we will see temperatures also increasing as we head over the weekend. Still seeing some pretty hot temperatures at the moment in the far north of the state, but generally we will see those temperatures uh, just warming up right across the state over the weekend. Probably see Monday ahead of that trough being the, the hottest over central and eastern parts, but uh, you're yeah, certainly cooling down again again once that trough goes through. Now it doesn't bring an awful lot of weather with it. We will see some showers and thunderstorms developing over the west uh, during Sunday and then extending further east over most parts apart from the, the northeast pastoral on Monday. A little bit of thunderstorm activity with it as well but generally speaking we're not looking at too much rainfall. More likely if we do get some thunderstorm activity we will see some higher falls but probably looking at generally you know around that sort of less than two millimeters maybe a little bit more um, over the southern agricultural area southern coasts but uh, yeah it's mainly with the thunderstorm activity where we'll see those highest falls As we head into Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, the activity starts contracting to the northeast. Still see a little bit of shower activity around northern and central parts, but thunderstorms just uh, up in the far northeast for those days and generally going into a clearing trend elsewhere. So, yeah, not a great deal of weather happening. The, The temperatures... Um, just increasing is probably one of the things we might go into some uh, heat wave conditions as we head across the latter part of the weekend into Monday. So, another watch point for that. But uh, yeah, generally, uh, the next system coming through is not as dynamic as what uh, we saw with the last one, but uh, still producing a little bit of shower and possible with thunderstorm activity. Selena, so mm. not uh, not much happening, not really. Um, kicking into summer so we will see as I said temperatures rising over most parts but we do get that cool change coming through fairly quickly so that will drop temperatures back down to below average conditions so if you're, yeah, if you're not living in the north of the state but uh, you're looking for yeah, a run of uh, warmer warmer days probably got a little bit more to wait until we get those um, longer periods of, of typical summer weather heading our way.
3: All right. Well, I mean, after the last uh, week or so, there's probably quite a few people quite happy to have a little bit of a, a, a calmer story from the weather front for at least a few days.
9: Yeah, definitely. It's uh, Yeah, when you get that sort of uh, rainfall and, and thunderstorm activity at this time of year, it, uh, I think it's something that people aren't really that used to. So it, uh, yeah, it is uh, well, quite different when we get uh, those rainfall totals uh, in summer.
3: Absolutely. Vince, thanks for that. Have a great rest of your day
9: thank you. Vince
3: Rollins there from the Weather Bureau. Now looking at the western inland of New South Wales for the Upper Western tomorrow looking at a sunny morning there is a chance of a thunderstorm closer to the Queensland border in the afternoon and early evening. Southerly winds 15 to 25 k's an hour turning southwesterlies 25 to 35 k's an hour in the middle of the day they'll then drop back to around 15 to 20 kilometres per hour by the late evening. Overnight temps in the Upper Western District between 19 and 23 in the day they'll reach the mid to high 30s. For the lower western district sunny tomorrow with south to southwesterly winds 15 to 25 k's now tending west to southwesterlies 25 to 35 kilometers per hour in the late morning overnight temperatures down to between 14 and 18 the daytime they'll get up to around 29 to 34 degrees it's coming up to half past 12 here on the country -er. up next should live sheep exports resume out of the port of adelaide
2: You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green.
3: Hi there. Great to be with you. For well, those of you not listening to the cricket and listening in on our ABC digital channels and the ABC Listen app today, it's great to have you on board In a moment, you'll hear why livestock producers are arguing for the return of live sheep exports out of Adelaide several years after that practice ceased. And you're going to go on a magic carpet ride with a crafty South Australian who's figured out an easier way to get his wheelchair around his rural property.
10: get on and off this in five seconds really and yeah it's great it's very useful allows you to take your wheelchair with you allows you to do a lot more than you otherwise would
3: it's a great story it's coming up so make sure you stick around for that one as well before we get into any of that though first let's cross to matt coleman because he's got the 12 30 headlines hi matt
11: Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, the Premier says the state's greyhound racing industry has two years to clean itself up. An independent review has handed down 57 recommendations, with an additional 29 from Greyhound Racing SA, the RSPCA and the Animal Justice Party. Former Victorian Police Chief Graham Ashton was appointed to look into welfare, governance and integrity in Greyhound Racing in SA. Australia's unemployment rate has increased to 3.9% despite the creation of more than 60,000 jobs last month as the participation rate surged to a fresh record high. Economists were generally expecting unemployment to tick up to 3.8% with 11,000 jobs created in some payback for October's surprisingly strong jobs gains. And the Adelaide City Council is considering ways to increase revenue from short-term accommodation like Airbnbs. One of the options being considered is charging short-stay rental properties commercial rather than residential rates. Adelaide Lord Mayor Jane lomax smith says she wants to see more accommodation available for permanent residency in the city. More news at one o'clock.
3: Thank you Matt. Matt Coleman with those headlines. Well, South Australian livestock producers have called for the resumption of live sheep exports out of Adelaide at the same time that the federal government is pondering how to phase out the practice altogether. The federal government has promised to end the live export of sheep by sea if it's elected for another term, and it's currently considering the report of an independent panel that was appointed to provide advice on how that should best be done. Livestock SA, along with industry representatives from Queensland, Victoria and New South Wales, have penned a letter to the Agriculture minister. Minister Murray Watt not only asking for live sheep exports to continue out of Australia by sea but for it to again happen out of Adelaide. Joe Keens is the president of Livestock SA and I asked him why.
12: We know that this is a bad policy and we need to overturn it as, as best we can or, or advocate for it to be overturned but uh, we think uh, you know Western Australia was a strong market for Western Australia and will continue to be. But we also know that it was a strong market in South Australia and it would be really good if we could reinvigorate that market. If we open up the Saudi market, which is a bit of a trial into, into the Saudi, Saudi used to take 500,000 sheep. You won't get 500,000 sheep out of Western Australia. It would be really great to see boats coming into South Australia and um, reinvigorating that trade. It's, it's a vital trade to Western Australia, but it's also a very useful trade for South Australia.
3: How long has it been since uh, she were exported out of Adelaide?
12: 2018. So it it has been a while, but uh, that's because uh, Western Australia's been able to satisfy the demand. Uh, Now let's see if there's there's an increased demand. Let's see if South Australia can enter and and help fulfil that demand. Mm.
3: Because when it did stop at that time, was it simply because there just weren't the numbers to sustain it going out of Adelaide?
12: Yeah, well, no... But the market was satisfied with um, uh, West Australian sheep. Uh, that was the, the majority of animals. So the boats will always go to to West Australia first, and then they'll either top up in South Australia or, or you know, we've we've done some initial investigations, and we think uh, 40 to 50,000 sheep in South Australia is a, a, an easy get. Uh, if we could get that many sheep, uh, it would be viable for a boat to come into South Australia. So that's that's the sort of things that we're, we're investigating. Mm.
3: And, and also to uh, put their signature on this letter, uh, you've got industry representatives from Queensland, you've got New South Wales uh, Farmers Association, the Victorian Farmers Federation as well. So those states see some value, obviously, in, in South Australia being an export avenue as well?
12: Yeah, I think in all of our discussions around um, trying to, overturn this cessation of the live export trade, we've we've done it as a collaboration of all the state farming organisations and other peak industry councils as well. I think it it shows the strength of the movement to ensure that we continue and have what is a viable and a very useful, uh, very important trade for Australian uh, sheep producers. So we, we just continue to work together to ensure that we can uh, try and keep this trade going.
1: If the
3: export ban does go ahead, as the, as the government is considering as we speak, I mean, what would the flow-on effect be for producers here in South Australia?
12: Oh, well, it, it just cuts off one avenue of, of trade that we we currently don't have and then, obviously, uh, Western Australia, uh, all the sheep, if they can't handle them uh, in West Australia, they'll also uh, compete against the South Australian sheep because they'll end up coming east. So. You know, And we've seen some impacts of that already with the low prices at the present, the low commodity prices at the present for livestock sheep. Uh, we know that uh, some of that has, has been the impact of Western Australian sheep coming back to South Australia. So we know it would have a negative effect to South Australia. So it's just important that we retain every avenue, every market that we possibly can. We need to have diversified markets and then we'll be able to grow and have a really strong sheep industry.
3: Have you had any indication from the minister's office or from the government that it it is open to considering keeping this trade going? All well, indications seem to be that they are, um, you know, looking towards stopping the trade, and, and that has certainly been their policy. Is, is there any indication that there's a reconsideration of that?
12: No, uh, not from not from where we're sitting. No, we definitely don't see that reconsideration happening. But saying that, Western Australia, the the government in Western Australia is now. Recognised the the value of the trade to the Western Australian sheep producers, so they've actually said that they would like to retain the trade now. So they've actually um, changed their their mind on on the policy. Um, so that hopefully will flow back into the to the eastern states and into the federal government as well. And you know, it's a it's a long long term thing. Uh, we know that the cessation of the trade is not imminent. It's pro- post the next election. So. We've got some time to keep working and, and demonstrating what a great trade this is, how viable it is and how, how well the animal welfare aspects have, have been um, improved over the number of years. And, and you know, we just can't understand why good science doesn't um, override uh, bad policy.
3: Joe Keens there, who's president of Livestock SA. I did contact the office of the Federal Ag Minister, Murray Watt, for a response, and I got this response from a government spokesperson, which reads, the Albanese government has always promised a considered and orderly transition to allow industry and communities time to adjust. We want to see the sheep industry continue to thrive built on more onshore processing jobs and increasing sheep meat exports we're hitting new records for the amount of sheep being processed in Australia we are hitting new records for sheep meat exports which is a good thing for local producers processors and regional communities and that is a statement from a government spokesperson as i mentioned earlier an independent panel was established to advise the government on how to phase out live sheep exports that panel provided its report with advice and recommendations to the minister Back on the 25th of October, government says it's considering the report's findings and recommendations as well as the next steps for government. That is that. That is taking us to 21 minutes to one. And you're with Selena Green this afternoon. Artificial intelligence will now be helping to defend forest plantations in the state's southeast for bushfires. Used for the early detection of fires, the new systems are currently in operation on two locations, towers at Camorm and Mount Benson, with an additional six towers expected to come online in the coming weeks. Anthony Walsh is the general manager for the Green Triangle Fire Alliance. He explained to Elsie Adamo how that tech works.
13: So the system's trained uh, to detect smoke. So the AI component to it is about you know, picking up smoke. So it's been trained to... You know, a cloud can look like smoke, you know, look like similar. So it's been trained to pick up smoke but yeah, there will be detections uh, of cloud and they have while this has been operating or cloud or particularly around here dust you know on the limestone roads there's lots of dust and that goes through a a human in the loop so the last thing we want are just too many notifications people will stop paying attention it goes through uh, a person so that's part of the service that we have is that it it, it goes through a person and they review it and go uh, they will say yes it is a fire and then we will be alerted to that or they'll say, no, false alarm, it's dust. And yeah, to date, in the last uh, few weeks, while the, while the um, cameras have been operating, we've had you know, three alerts and there's been lots of dust detections. But we don't know, you know, it, you can go into the system and see them and you can see that someone's doing something about it, but we're not being pestered by, you know, those false alarms.
0: So how far can these cameras see?
13: So the uh, Pano work on a 20-kilometre uh, viewshed, so a 20-kilometre mm. radius viewshed. You know, they will see... A greater distance on other day on particular days, but that's what we've worked on for for determining the placement of cameras. We've worked on 20 kilometres. I mean, there was a fire on the weekend at Y, and that was 23 kilometres uh, from the uh, the station where it was picked up, and that was clear as. But yeah, you know, we work on 20, a little bit conservative perhaps, but better to be conservative than um, you know too, being too bullish on it. So we have uh, two cameras on each location. So each view about 180 degrees and those images are stitched together. Now unless you're up the very top of a tower, you're going to have the tower infrastructure obstructing some of the view, so that's one of the reasons for having two cameras is because each camera then does you know 180 degrees and it's put together so you have an unimpeded view the other aspect is that one camera can be taken over and it's got a 30 times optical zoom on it so it can be used to determine whether something you know you've got something you're not sure whether it's a it is smoke or whether it could be a harvester you know harvesting out there putting up dust that camera can be taken over by someone and it's within you know the forestry companies can do this or pano uh, they can take over the camera zoom in and determine what it is meanwhile the other camera takes over and does 360 degrees. But during that period, you do have some of the power, the tower obstructing your view.
6: And
0: how much time might it save? And if there was, if it does detect a bushfire, what difference in the process would it make there?
13: I guess it's really yeah, hard to say. It's particularly our know, cases. There will be cases when, you know, someone's out and they've got an angle grinder and they start a fire and, and they, will, they will know immediately and they'll call triple zero. But, you know, there'll be other cases where fires start, you know, from, from lightning. So it's a little bit hard to put a figure on it. But what... The whole purpose of these the sooner we know about fires the sooner we can put them out the less damage there is to you know the entire community
14: and how was the location chosen
13: it was about plantations the plantation coverage the whole region coverage i mean the the area of plantation of the of the footprint it's about 25 percent is uh plantation so the remaining 75 percent or thereabouts is you know farmland towns communities Mm -hmm. uh and natural you know natural bushland so that's part of it the other part is you know, we put them on in existing infrastructure. So it's a matter of where the, uh, where the towers were. So we've gone on fire towers, also on uh, commercial towers. And that's something that's quite different about this uh, project is there's been fire cameras put on people's own towers around the country today. This is the first project that I know of where they've been put on, uh, you know, commercial towers. So part of this project, so there's eight, um, eight sites in South Australia, there's another seven in Victoria. Mm-hmm. And of those seven, three of them are close to the border, but there's in total, I think there's um, seven or eight different owners. And so that's been fairly complex.
0: And is this tech that will be able to continue to be tinkered with or become more sophisticated as the years go on?
13: Absolutely, you know, all this stuff, it's, it's developing, it's always developing very quickly.
0: And part of the benefit of the system, will they be able to work both day and night?
13: There are two different algorithms. There's the daytime algorithm yep. and there's a the nighttime algorithm. Mm-hmm that it isn't uh, infrared, but it will pick up on changes in light. And as I understand it, it's trained to, you know, there's lots of light sources out there, but it's trained to look at how it changes through time. So if you've got a headlight that stays the same, it won't detect it. But if you've got something which is gradually growing in size, that's when it will um, suggest that it's a fire.
3: As the General Manager for the Green Triangle Fire Alliance, Anthony Walsh, there speaking to Elsie Adamo
15: conversations.
3: Spend an hour in the life of someone else.
15: We were ultimately living two lives. The magic was when Chris and Daniel and I played together. That's what made Silverchair so special.
3: Someone who has seen and done remarkable things.
9: When I got off the plane, the reception made me fall in love with this country. People didn't see a black man. People saw a human being.
3: Hear the latest conversations.
11: Weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio.
3: Or anytime on the ABC Listen app.
2: This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill.
3: Well, regional and farming families struggling to access childcare should soon see some relief. A draft report recently released by the Productivity Commission said the federal government should adopt and offer more support to families living in childcare black spots in remote and regional Australia. The inquiry found families are struggling to access services due to poor availability, high out-of-pocket expenses and a lack of flexibility and inclusivity. Family Daycare Australia CEO Andrew Patterson says recognition of these issues should pave the way for better childcare services.
15: The Productivity Commission references widely the need for better support for families living in regional, rural and remote communities, or what they term thin markets. Uh, And there's certainly broad recognition there of the capabilities of the family daycare sector to better support families and communities uh, in those regions. Family daycare is an approved form of early childhood education and care, uh, which is traditionally delivered in the home of the family daycare educator as opposed to uh, in what we commonly know as a long daycare centre.
0: With regards to that report, what does it say the family daycare system needs in terms of support?
15: What we know is that um, there are obviously barriers to entry uh, into the system and what we need to do uh, in collaboration with governments and rural communities is look at the ways in which we go about removing some of those barriers um, to bringing new educators into the system. Uh, Obviously, it's far more efficient for us to use existing infrastructure by way of example for the home um, uh, of a family daycare educator than it is to build uh, centres that are potentially never going to be viable. Uh, So looking at means by which we um, incentivise entry into the sector, we support new educators to enter uh, and look at other ways that we can leverage the family day care system, for example, through the use of um, community venues, for example.
0: What are some of the unique challenges that regional and farming families are facing when they're trying to access childcare? What are you hearing from families out there?
15: Well, what we know is that um, certainly that there is a significant lack of supply and what we know also is that when uh, long day care centres, um, childcare centres become uh, unviable, they're certainly not well placed to continue operating and they're not viable markets for providers to enter the system. We've got a significant issue of really high demand but, um, you know, quite significant supply issues in those communities.
0: Would you support the case of family daycare providers operating in in places outside of their homes? So for an example, a farm building?
15: Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to be um, innovative in creating solutions that are practical, that are viable. And within the current regulatory framework, there is provision for family daycare providers to operate uh, in what we call an in-venue operational model, leveraging things like preschool that may have closed down, it may be a community facility, community hall. Those provisions exist, we just need to leverage those capabilities better and I think we have a really good opportunity to come up with some really practical and, and innovative solutions to support rural communities.
0: Was there anything in within this productivity commission's draft report that rural families can celebrate?
15: Oh, I think absolutely. I think the recognition, formal recognition through the productivity commission report uh, of the issues faced by by rural families, um, it is broadly recognised throughout the report. Uh, and it really shines a light on, um, on, on the need for some fairly prompt and significant action in that space.
0: Is there anything that we can expect from the future? Is there a timeline uh, involved with this or, or, or um, any sort of short term solutions that regional families can expect?
15: Yes, certainly. We, we, we know that and the report calls out um, the need for uh, some pilot programs to test some models um, in these communities and I think we'll see that in the short term. Uh, I think also work that we're doing with organisations supporting rural families, farming communities, we'll see some pretty pretty immediate action and hopefully if those programs are successful we can, uh, we can push for a broader rollout.
0: Are you involved in any pilot programs in this space yourself?
15: Uh, we're certainly uh, hopefully on the verge of some pilot programs in space. We are in discussions with uh, grain growers, for example, uh, to look at utilising uh, venues um, in farming communities to uh, implement family daycare programs. So there's certainly a lot of work that is happening in this space and it's, a, it's certainly a big focus of government.
3: As Family Daycare Australia CEO Andrew Patterson's there, speaking with Fiona Broom. Now, the spread of H5N1 avian influenza, or bird flu, as you probably better know it, it shows no signs of slowing down. Now, while it has to be detected in Australia, it hasn't yet, worldwide the outbreak has seen more than 100 million commercial birds destroyed in attempts to control the disease. Dr Mary Wu is the CEO of the Australian Chicken Meat Federation. She told Karen Hunt the bird flu in the USA has been devastating
14: so h5n1 which is highly pathogenic avian influenza in the us in the last year alone has killed around 60 million birds and that's commercial poultry that we're talking about as well as millions of wild birds so it is a very devastating disease uh, and highly highly contagious we've seen both poultry but also turkeys and eggs uh, being affected And obviously that does create a supply disruption, particularly when we're talking about once a flock becomes infected, the control measures that are implemented around it to to control the disease.
1: Given the fact that um, many animal diseases that we thought would never come to Australia have been detected in here, and I'm thinking about the varroa mite in the honey industry at the moment, do you expect this disease to get to Australia?
14: Australia does have some really great evolutionary advantages in that we don't have the migratory birds that come in on a mass scale if you look at us and canada for example they do have massive bird flyways where the wild birds essentially go from point a to point b those flyways don't necessarily exist in australia we have a lot more sort of the nomadic bird population that moves around. If it does get into Australia, we do have really strong preparedness programs. We can respond very quickly and look at eradication as quickly as possible.
1: Can you vaccinate against this? You
14: can, and there are some countries in the world that are starting to to do that. But vaccination isn't the silver bullet in this case, because once you start vaccinating, there are a whole heap of considerations that have to be applied including you know how often do you do it how do you vaccinate you've got to constantly upgrade the vaccine so that it matches the field strains there's a lot of technical considerations around that so in Australia we're talking about it and we're thinking about it but at this point in time our response policy uh, has always been that if it comes into the country and it's detected in commercial flocks then our first response is to eradicate that as quickly as
1: possible. Are there any reports of this mutating into a less harmful strain?
14: The history with avian influenza is that it does mutate fairly rapidly and fairly quickly. So we have seen various um, degrees of pathogenicity associated with avian influenza viruses the impact and the effect has been on wild birds um, as well as commercial flocks and we've also seen some particularly the the predatory wildlife have been affected as well the really positive thing at the moment um, is that the world health organization has said that from a pandemic perspective the risk of this virus is very low to humans.
1: As an industry, is this your prime concern as far as the health of your chickens is concerned at present? Biosecurity
14: is a critical consideration. There's other bird diseases out there that affect commercial poultry. So our role is to ensure that the industry keeps as you know, strong biosecurity practices as possible to ward against not just avian influenza, but other avian diseases.
1: At an international level, is this the worst of the bird flus that have come through over the years?
14: I think if you look at in the context of bird flu overall, over probably the last 30 years, there's been around 500 million birds that have either been um, killed or have been destroyed as a result of bird flu. In this last year alone, we're talking about over a hundred million birds to this particular strain have been lost. So yes, I would say that this is probably the worst one that we've had.
3: As Dr. Mary Wu there from the Australian Chicken Meat Federation, speaking there to Karen Hunt. You're with Selena Green on the Country out today. It is We're just going on six minutes to one. Well, roll on, put the brake on your wheelchair, start the engine and drive off to where you've got to go. That's the simple design of a new vehicle that's created by South Australian rural landowner Tom Carr, who was looking for a better and easier way to get around his property, especially on the dirt tracks. He's been testing out a petrol engine version and he's called it the magic carpet. A reporter Caroline Horn, went along to find out more.
8: In a shed on his property at Ashbourne, south of Adelaide, mechanical engineer and self-described tinkerer Tom Carr has made a prototype of a magic carpet. To be fair, it looks more like a flat-bottomed go-kart than a carpet, but it is designed for users to be able to get on quickly and easily and just go wherever they want. But Tom's magic carpet is aimed at wheelchair users and particularly those living in the country.
10: I can get on and off this in five seconds, ready and... The car is two minutes and it's strenuous and I can access the property a lot better than I used to. It's $200 Chonda 6 horsepower motor with an eBay carburetor, an eBay torque converter for a go-kart. On and off it's had a few, it's not really serious teething issues but uh, it's like anything you kind of refine it as you go and slowly you get to something that's, that's workable. I run the dog up and down the track every day and I pretty much go around the flatter parts of the property. Our property is particularly steep so I can do the flatter parts in this. It's probably more limited by my courage on the steeper areas than the device itself but it's been super useful. I can access uh, sheds that I couldn't access. Yeah it's great, it's very useful, allows you to take your wheelchair with you, allows you to do a lot more than you otherwise would. The problem with the wheelchair is you can drive a car that's fine but to take a wheelchair you roll up to your car and then you do a transfer so you you lift your bum from the wheelchair seat into the car it's quite strenuous and then once you've done that you lift your wheelchair over the top of you you take the wheels off lift it over the top of you pop it into the car so if you want to go for a coffee in Strathalbyn, it means you've got to do that to to get to the cafe do that when you've got into Strath so you lift your wheelchair back over get into it again so you've done it four times to go there and back and it means that you tend not to do things very often I have this idea that if you are in a device that's slow and cumbersome it'll make you feel more disabled than you are and if you're in something that's fast and empowering it'll make you feel less disabled than you are so you know the aim of design in this space is to make people less disabled
8: it's been a bit of a journey to the community of ashbourne for tom and his wife
10: laura they first
8: came to australia in 2011 for a working holiday but found themselves wanting to stay
10: we lived in melbourne for five years i realized i couldn't afford a house that i actually wanted and uh, we moved to adelaide we sort of fell in love with Adelaide in a roundabout way and property searched for a year, came to Ashbourne, fell in love with the community, had a had a pretty nasty accident straight after moving here. And then, yeah, came back to the same property and we've lived here for uh, coming up to seven years. And I can't speak too highly of people in Ashbourne. They've been just a really wonderful bunch of people to live amongst. We share farm, we have a, a really great neighbor he's a farmer and we uh, we share farm it with him and he's sort of a uh, missing piece in the puzzle for the magic carpet and that he is always badgering me. He, he saw something like this in Murray Bridge in the 80s and he kept on telling me about it and then we we started, we talked a bit more and he's the kind of guy because he's a pretty busy kind of guy. He'd come over with a beer inadvertently and we'd, we'd work on it a little bit and you know we'd talk about it and then work on it a bit more. And so slowly at the start of 2023, the thing came, to, came into being. Yeah, um, um, uh, a lot of thanks for that. I always say we won the Neighbours Lottery.
8: And now the petrol engine prototype has been well tested on the property here at Ashbourne, Tom has big plans for the next generation.
10: The next step for me is I'll do a version with a hub motor so it will be electric and battery pack. And my view is you should be able to take something like this on the road once it's engineered correctly. Then you can get from a to b
8: what's going to be the main obstacles or the main issues you're going to have to overcome to get it
10: road legal so the vehicle engineer he'll write a set of requirements it'll be things like going through the forces uh, in the suspension so making sure we have an engineered safety factor throughout that system there's always a certain amount of customization for for every disabled person just given their specific disability and we'll have to make an argument for what's reasonable and safe for that user group so it will probably include a seat belt if not a four-point harness and some kind of roll cage but the short answer is at the moment my plan is I've been looking at doing it with three wheels so one wheel in the front and two at the rear but I believe at this point in time we have a a clearer path to market and this is low volume vehicle manufacture for a specific group with one wheel at the front and two wheels at the back
3: Tom Carr there. He's a mechanical engineer and the inventor from Ashbourne in South Australia speaking with Caroline Horn, As He said he's hoping to have a road legal version of the magic carpet ready to go by this time next year. If you'd like to read more about Tom's story and see some photos of the magic carpet and what it actually looks like, uh, you can head online right now to abc.net.au. That story is on our website, so go and check it out. Uh, thanks for your company today. Keep listening to the ABC via your digital channels if you'd like to keep listening uh, to your regular programs throughout the afternoon. And I will be back uh, via these channels again tomorrow for more Country Hour. It's just coming up to Newstime and one o'clock. Thanks so much for your company. Enjoy the rest of your day.
2: To get started with the ABC Listen app, find the App Store on your phone. Search for ABC Listen, tap the pink ABC Listen icon and download it. Congratulations, now you've got ABC Radio in your pocket.
0: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.